Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. Folklore and fairy tales can sometimes be inextricably bound up with religion. In the Grimm's own collection of fairy tales, the devil turns up, and so do angels. The peasant in heaven, as well as the devil and his grandmother, were included alongside more well-known tales such as Cinderella and Rumpelstiltskin. With the current appetite for mythological retellings undiminished, we wanted to talk to Ariel Kaplan about her novel, The Pomegranate Gate, which is described as a Jewish fairy tale. Ariel, thank you for joining us. Please introduce yourselves to our listeners and tell us a little bit about your book. Hi, my name is Ariel Kaplan. Uh, I am the author of the forthcoming The Pomegranate Gate, which comes out July 20th in the UK. Uh, The Pomegranate Gate contains elements of a number of different Jewish folktales sort of spun out into a larger epic fantasy, which is going to span three different books. And I'm glad to be here with you today. Just to ease us in a little bit more, do you want to tell us a little bit about the three main characters, but without too many spoilers for those who haven't read it yet? The Pomegranate Gate has two main point of view characters and a couple of more minor point of view characters. The two mains are Toba Paris, who is a young woman in her late 20s living in a city called Ramon. Uh, She is the grandchild of a scholar and finds herself having to leave when all of the Jews are cast out of the country uh, and then subsequently finds herself sort of trapped in the, the land of the Mazics, which are mythical immortals. On the other hand is Naftali, who is the son and grandson and great-grandson in a line of tailors, who is living in the same city, is very bad, a very bad tailor, and is plagued by strange dreams that he cannot make sense of. He, while Toba is exploring the land of the Mazics, is left behind in mortal Sephirod, trying to get out of the country while trying also to save Toba with the help of Toba's grandmother and an old beggar woman who has sort of begun following him around. I have to say, I love the fact that Nefali was a very bad tailor. That, for me, was one of the the cool bits of it. You've got this main character, and they're usually so either so bored with their lives or so desperate to get out or so brilliant at something. And he was just like, meh, I just, you know, I just do stuff. I'm kind of okay at it, but I'm kind of not bad either. Right. Well, he, he has been sort of looking to uh, expand his horizons, but there's really nothing else he can do. He's lived a very sheltered life. His father is aware that he has these strange dreams and he also has strange visions. And his, his father's solution to this is to never speak about it. So at the beginning of the book, uh, his father has passed away. He's been thrown out of the country and he's trying to find some way to survive all this uh, with no real skills and sort of no clear path forward. So I was intrigued. It's a really good, solid fairy tale, but you set it in quite an unusual location. What made you choose the location you did? What in particular spoke to you about it? I have been interested in the history of Spain really since college and even before. Uh, When I was in college, I, I was lucky enough to do a semester in Sevilla 
Uh, and when I was there, I was able to do a lot of coursework on Islamic Spain and a lot of coursework on Sephardi Spain. So that has been an interest going forward ever since then. I did a Monroe Scholar Project at, at William & Mary on the history of the Jews of Spain. So I have always wanted to find some way to write a novel about that period. And I had thought a few years ago that setting a fantasy in that time period could be really fascinating. So I am quite interested in, obviously, I, I myself work in the, the kind of mythological retelling field of fantasy. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you approach kind of working with folklore in this particular, or in, in your particular mythology, because when religion and mythology intersect, it can get kind of murky. So how do you, you know, what gave you the idea to kind of start working um, with these mythological motifs? Uh, well, I have been interested in, in Jewish folklore since I was a fairly young child. I was given a book of Howard Schwartz retellings when I was maybe eight or nine, and, and I loved these stories. They were very different than the other fairy tales I had read because they tend to focus more on everyday people. The people tend to be sort of ethically a little bit gray. Uh, you have people making terrible mistakes. They tend to be very broad in terms of the time period and the culture. So you get a lot of different things. They're, they're very diverse. And so I had wanted to be able to write something that felt like those, four, those fairy tales did to me when I was a child. The type of magic in them always felt really special to me. And I wanted to convey that in a, a larger format, you know, a 500 page book instead of a, a five page fairy tale. Um, and so I had the idea to combine these mythological elements. And there are several sort of woven all together with the historical period of 15th century Spain. I too am a huge fan of folklore. I think we could have our own little folklore society here. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting with your book is how there's obviously religion in it. There's lots of um, religious words and religious practices within it that you wouldn't necessarily get in a, a Western fairy tale. So how did you approach using folklore in a, a fantasy novel or speculative novel when that folklore intersects with a living and very widely practiced religion itself? So I don't make a distinction between folklore and religion. To me, those two things are so deeply intertwined that you can't tease them apart. Um, a lot of these Jewish folktales have their origins in specifically religious texts. A lot of the early stories about demons or mazics come directly out of the Talmud, or they come from Midrash. So you, you, can't, you can't tease them apart. So I don't try to think about things as being either religious or folkloric, to me, those are the same. As for using them in a speculative novel, uh, I feel like taking existing stories and expanding on them is a particularly Jewish enterprise. It's part of Jewish tradition. There is a big history of trying to understand stories, even biblical stories, by taking small parts of them and expanding them. Um, you take one line from the Torah and you, and, and you say, okay, well, let's, let's, tell you more about what happened or why it happened this way. So it's something that's always been done. The rabbis did it. Regular people did it. Um, you can see it in sacred texts. You can see it in more secular 
modern texts. Um, you can even track the development of retellings of these older stories because they keep popping up again and again in different times and different places. And you can see how they've been affected by the changing culture of who was retelling them. So it, it is very much sort of a traditional way of approaching stories. That's interesting that you said the Mazics came from religion. So do they appear in folklore as well, or are they just within the religious texts, or do they kind of jump between both? They are essentially everywhere. So I, I will talk a little bit about the Mazics. Um, there are two words in Hebrew that get translated into English as demon. Uh, the most widely used word is shade, and Mazic is used a little less often. And so... Probably, if you go back and look at the original text, you're, you're reading Shade rather than Mazic, but it gets translated into English the same way. Whether that's accurate is eh, a bit hazy. I spent a long time going back and forth about how I was going to refer to these people. I ended up going with Mazic because it is the lesser used term. And since I was crafting so much uh, culture and backstory and the world for these beings, it felt better to me to go with a less common word. So that's that's the semantics of why I use the word mazic as, as opposed to shade. Um, I could have just called them demons, uh, which is how maybe it might have been cl more closely re rendered in English. But there's a connotation to demon in English or in Europe in general that doesn't really apply to the original words. Um, in Jewish folklore, going back even to the Talmud, the demons aren't necessarily evil. They, they can be. Sometimes they are evil, but it's not really a requirement. Uh, they're kind of a value-neutral group. They're more like, like the jinn or uh, the Japanese yokai. Uh, if you watch a lot of anime, they translate yokai as demon, whether these people are good or bad. And it, it feels a little bit wrong because it is a little bit wrong. It's almost more like uh, an inhuman spirit. And if you read a lot of Jewish folklore, a demon can be anything. It can look like a person. It can look like something else. A lot of the demons are themselves describe themselves as being Jewish. A lot of them live in societies. Some of them don't. Some of them are very, very smart. Some of them aren't. So it's, it's this whole hodgepodge of, of creatures that get this one name. Uh, they're very common in Jewish folklore going all the way back. I thought they were utterly fascinating and it was so nice to read a different kind of folklore from from what we traditionally read. And it just made me wonder, like this, these whole beings that I've never kind of heard of before, um, what kind of challenges did you face in extrapolating them out and taking them from just something that's on a religious page or a folkloric page and putting them as real, live, breathing characters in your story? What, what did you change? What did you keep the same? Well, because there is so much diversity in the way demons are described in the folktales, I didn't feel like I was too terribly constrained. Um, there is this idea in a lot of the Jewish folkloric tradition of the Yenevelt, which is like the the mirror world, the other world, the idea that there is this other world that is sort of a dark mirror of the one that we live in. And that's sort of like the world of, of the demons. So I, I did sort of run with that and decide to make the Mazics more human, perhaps, than they otherwise, they don't have chicken feet. They've got some sort of strange eyes. They're immortal. They can do magic. The major difference is I wanted to change the way their magic system worked, um, in particular, because I wanted to make give Toba a reason to um, struggle with it a little bit. 
without uh, having too many spoilers. Uh, so it, it works different than she, the way she thinks that magic and learning should work. And so that was the major difference. But yeah, I, I felt like I was pretty free to sort of make them however I wanted to. So they're sort of very civilized people who live literally in cities and they have a, a fairly complex society, which is different depending on which city they live in. And we'll get more into that in uh, future books. Ah, yes, future books. I wanted to ask um, whether there are going to be any other interesting creatures uh, from folklore that we haven't heard about before. Are you allowed to talk about the future books in that respect? I, I can sort of talk about what's already alluded to in, in the first book, uh, which is to say that one of the main folkloric elements that comes up in the first book is the Ziz. The Ziz is sort of the avian equivalent of the behemoth and the leviathan, which I think are pretty well known. You have the leviathan is the, the lord of the sea, and you have the behemoth, which is you know, a great beast. And then you have the Ziz, which is a bird that is so huge, it can blot out the wings with its, uh, it can blot out the sun with its wings. Uh, the Ziz is not often spoken about outside of Jewish folklore, but it's pretty important in the Pomegranate Gate and becomes more important in the sequels. There are also demons in the more sort of classical sense in, in that they're not human-like. They're, they're sort of disembodied spirits um, those become more important also as the series progresses. So you just were touching on briefly, you know, a bit about magic and how you incorporated that into your novel. Um, and clearly your main character, Toba, is is a, ma- a very magical individual. But how about, how did you go about crafting your protagonist and the idea of introducing a magic system that has enough restraints set on it to to work in a rational way, you know, in your world. So Toba is a scholar, essentially. Um, Toba is somebody who grew up in, with, with her grandfather, who was a translator. And because she was a little bit spoiled, she spent her childhood and her early adulthood studying with him. Um, and so she has ideas based on that of how the world works. Um, she's hyperliterate. She speaks many languages. She's familiar with classical text. She's familiar with Arabic learning, uh, as well as the Jewish learning that she would have received at home. And she's, on top of that, very, very clever. And that helps her ability to sort of negotiate her place with the Mazics and keep up in that world so she's not completely blindsided when she gets there. However, what she doesn't really understand is the way Mazic magic works because she thinks everything should be based on learning and Mazic magic is not that way. So it, it becomes another uh, stumbling block for her. Whereas conversely, Naphtali, who is sort of not very good at anything, is able to sort of slide into that magical system a little bit more easily because he does not have the expertise that Toba has. He, he doesn't automatically assume that he should be able to figure out intuitively what to do with it that it's not based on studying so toba it's very difficult to talk about toba without giving away a little bit of a, a plot point it, um, it is it is lucy <laughs> <laughs> and i try to try to talk about this great main character but not get away too much so at the beginning she's somewhat she's got some gifts and some inhibitions so can you talk to us about how you how you crafted her and went you know what I think a woman who is a scholar but also has her background is going to have the ability to write with two hands, for example. I mean, 
to be honest, that is a skill I would love to have. If I could write with two hands, uh, two different languages, then all of my my editing projects would be so much easier. <laughs> so is this are these kind of tropes that you see within Jewish folklore? Is it the idea of, you know, being ambidextrous, um, issues with speed, issues with um, speech and and being loud and things. Again, try to talk around it without giving spoilers. Are these things that you draw from Jewish folklore? Are they from your mind or or where do they come from? Uh, I think mostly those are more from my own mind than specifically from folklore. But I I think the situation to be aware of is that Toba is a Jewish woman in, in sort of a very hostile world. She doesn't have any physical power. She doesn't have any social power or political power. All she has is, is her cleverness. And so that's, that's the only weapon she, she can wield. So I wanted to make her as clever as possible, as clever as, as, as could be done, so that she can approach the magic world with, with some amount of usefulness of experience, of being able to uh, deal with these very powerful immortal beings. So obviously Toba is one of many female characters you have in your novel, and we do love female characters here on Breaking the Glass Slipper. Um, one I thought was good is the unnamed old woman. She's she's almost comic relief, isn't she, with her wry and very dark and quite fatalistic sense of humour. I did find myself chuckling along as I, as I read about her and her response to those around her. So is she... Is she a trope from Jewish folklore? Did she start out this way, or did she kind of develop as you were you were writing? Well, she very much developed as I was writing. Uh, there certainly are a lot of older women in Jewish folklore that are that are pretty important, but she specifically sort of came out of that that trope of older women, but mostly was my own invention. Um, she wasn't actually in the original outline of the book, except she was there for maybe half a page. There's a scene very early, so it's not much of a spoiler where Naphtali's house is broken into. She appears there, and the original idea was for her to immediately leave. They have a very short conversation about leaving the city. She will never see her again. Uh, what I realized as I was starting to write was that having Naphtali wandering around in the wilderness by himself was a bad choice. It was very boring. So I just let her stick around. And then she sort of evolved into this voice of reason because Naphtali is very sheltered. He's very idealistic. He doesn't always make choices that are in his own self-interest. And Elena, who is another older woman, Toba's grandmother, also sort of came into the story the same way. She was initially only there right in the beginning. Then I decided I really needed a flashback showing Toba's early childhood. So I brought her back. And from there, it was pretty clear that she was going to have to stay in the story. So I end up with now two old women. They don't like each other very much who are trying to keep Natalie from basically walking off of a cliff. And what about the Corsa? Because you've got your two main characters are Natalie and Toba, and they are very straightforward characters. But the Corsa is much darker and I don't want to say twisted because that implies, you know, morals. But I kind of wondered what made you want to go with two very traditional, very optimistic, very proactive characters and have this really dark third point of view character. Where where did that come in in your planning and plotting? Did Was this something that you started out going, yep, this is definitely going to be another point of view character? Or were you writing going, you know what, I really need to have a point of view from this position? Uh, The Corsair was actually in the story from very early on. One of the major themes in the story is this idea of the mirror between the mortal world and the Mazics, which I've already spoken about, the sort of the Yenevelt kind of idea. 
And the Courser very much starts off as a dark mirror of Toba, who up until the beginning of the story has had a pretty easy life. Her grandparents are overprotective, but nothing really bad has ever happened to her. And then on the other hand, you have the Courser, who was raised by the worst person imaginable. And she's made to do all sorts of terrible things. And she does them because she doesn't have much of a choice. So I wanted to explore her character in contrast to Toba, but also having a point of view character who's on the inside of the magic world sort of allows the reader to get a better understanding of the mechanics of what's happening in a way that we can't get from Toba, uh, who is seeing it from a very limited perspective. Well, I have to admit, I, I can't wait to see how all these characters are going to develop across the, the next three books. Are you Do you sort of have a, an idea of where they're going to end up? Or is it just, are you writing sort of like Agatha Christie and going, well, I'll just see what happens? Uh, I always have a very detailed outline, and I very often do not follow the outline. So I do have a draft of the second book completed. So I know where, where we're going, at least through the end of the second book. The third book I have is a little bit more amorphous at this point. But I do know at least where everything concludes. The last chapter is in my head. Ariel, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, because we were talking about uh, women, and you have a couple of really interesting female characters in your book. But in Jewish folklore, how are women presented in general? I mean, do we see them as particularly proactive characters or are they encountering the same stereotypes and tropes that we're very used to, say, you know, seeing in um, Western literature popularized by the Brothers Grimm? That's a difficult question to answer. There is there there's just so much material and it I mean, it runs over thousands of years. I think. Any sort of female character that you that you could be interested in, you would probably find. You mentioned a book of fairy tales earlier. Were there any particularly strong female characters in that, that stories that you can remember that stayed with you and perhaps maybe quietly influenced your writing because they're always hanging around at the back of your head? Well, there was one, I recall, uh, in the name of the story, I believe this is originally Talmudic, is it's the princess and the morning star, and you will probably recognize this story uh, in which two angels appear on earth and they go and visit the uh, king's palace. They fall in love with his two daughters, the two princesses, and decide that they want to marry them. Uh, the princesses think that this is just fine and decide to go ahead and go through with it. However, then one of them gets a warning that these are in fact angels and if they marry these angels and have children with them, it will bring about the end of the world. And so one of the princesses who gets this warning says, that's fine. I think this is nonsense. The other one says, this is terrible. I'm going to find a way to get out of it. And so what she then does is she uses the power of, of the name of God to bind one of these angels so that he can't come near her and doesn't marry him. And then she in turn becomes a star like in the heavens. Uh, and that's sort of her reward for, for not pursuing this. The other sister, unfortunately marries the angel. They had children. And of course this brings about the flood. Um, but the, the, the one princess is this very heroic figure. And the idea that you have these angels who are behaving in this really particularly terrible way and they get punished in sorts of ways I won't go into, uh, was very interesting to me that there isn't this huge distinction between angels and demons in terms of who's good and who's bad, but also the, the idea that you have this, this princess who is sort of the hero of the story was also very interesting to me. 
Brilliant. Well, my last question is is really, you know, to ask about whether you have any good, because we love book recommendations on this podcast. And Charlotte and I were kind of racking our brains and thinking, well, the only sort of, um, you know, the popular novels that we can think of or stories in recent years that feature elements of Jewish folklore are Spinning Silver and Among the Thorns. So do you have any other recommendations for our listeners if they're, you know, interested in Jewish folklore? I have a few. I will give you some that, that are out now that I've already read and, and, and some that are on my to-be-read to pile, which has gotten, unfortunately, rather big as I've been writing The Pomegranate Gate. Um, I just finished reading uh, Helene Wecker's The Hidden Palace, which was a sequel to The Golem and the Ginny, which was one of my favorite historical fantasies of all time, which is about a golem and a ginny on the Lower East Side of New York around 1900. Uh, the sequel then goes up through World War One. And it's very cleverly done. The world building is really tight. Uh, I can't recommend that one enough. Uh, and the other one, that, which is out already, which I really loved, um, it's not a fantasy, but it is a historical novel, is Rachel Kaddish's The Weight of Ink, uh, which is about a female Sephardi scribe who comes to London to work for a blind rabbi during the 1660s, just after Cromwell has made it legal for Jews to reenter the country. One also that's out is Sisters of the Winter Wood by Rena Rosner, which is another one that's very much like a novel-length fairy tale. Two others that I haven't read yet are The City Beautiful by Aidan Polydoros, which is about a Dybbuk, and I can't wait to read that one. And then one which is not out yet is The Sins on Their Bones by Laura Samatin, which is pretty heavily inspired by Jewish mysticism and is at the top of my to-be-read list. That is a fantastic list, <laughs> a fantastic to be read list. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of a few of them and just hadn't made the connection. Um, so that's really great. Thanks for recommending those. We'll uh, we'll put a list of those books um, in the episode notes. Yeah, I'm like Lucy. I'm like, oh, okay, that's a good one. So yeah, they're going to the top of my to read pile. Um, that's fantastic. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Ariel. I kind of feel like we could have a whole extra episode where we compared angels within folklore, both Jewish and Christian fairy tales. <laughs> There's so much to unpack there. Um, thanks again for joining us and good luck with the book. And I can't wait to read the next two. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here talking about Jewish folklore and the Pomegranate Gate and new books to be read. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.